So I'd like to welcome you back to the Backbone Broadcast, where we are helping get more males on course with self-care. This podcast helps to support the Male Wellness Collective's efforts in promoting male wellness and well-being in our communities. I'd like to introduce Dr. Lutz, who is a partner at the Michigan Institute of Urology. Open the great Thanks. Light Glad to be here. <laughs> we're, on, we're on a phone call, so we're calling in. I also have Dr. Mike Ravito returning in studio. Love to have him here. Glad to be here, buddy. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be all three of us. And I am really interested in learning about Dr. Lutz's bedside manner, which him and I have had discussions in the past. Um, and he alluded to that in one of our previous discussions where he treats his patients as the humans they are rather than, say, just a patient number per se. Right? Yeah. And just real quick, I'm, I'm very happy and excited to have Dr. Lutz on the show. I, I was speaking to him before we started recording, and I just want to tell everybody how how much that uh, I look up to him for how much he impacts men, both in the clinic and the community. So I just want to throw that out there and just kind of give that little bit of a jumping point to like, you know, what you're going to be sharing with us today. But I just want to give you some kudos officially. So. Oh, Michael. <laughs> yeah, thanks. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure where to begin, but I think the best place for me to begin is the beginning of my practice back in uh, 1986. July 1st was a Tuesday. Why do I remember that? I still remember my first day of being in practice after leaving my residency. And in 1986, prostate cancer and prostate cancer survivorship was very different than it is today. Because in 1986, before PSA was generally used, the PSA, which is a prostatic-specific antigen blood test, 79,000 cases of prostate cancer were diagnosed in the United States on an annualized basis. And it was after the PSA was discovered and implemented that 250,000 men a year in the United States were diagnosed with prostate cancer due to the widespread usage of judicious and sometimes overused screening. And over the decades of implementation of proper PSA usage, we are now at approximately 190,000 cases a year diagnosed in the United States with over 3 million men in the United States as prostate cancer survivors. Mm. They're not all handled the same because people don't treat them all the same. There is disparities in men's health. There are disparities in prostate cancer survivorship. And one of the things that we need to do as physicians and caregivers is find better ways to care for these individuals, identify who needs their services more than ever, and actually address their needs in a more widespread way. They're not just a cancer survivor. There are men's health survivors as well. Right. And I always tell every patient when they're diagnosed with prostate cancer, congratulations, you are now a prostate cancer survivor. And it's a club you never chose to be entered into, but you are in this club no matter what. And our goal is to make you the best survivor that you can be. That's right. And that's really what we focus on is how to do the best that you can through the process. And we are learning. And we are still learning how to make people better survivors. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the patients that we counsel when we diagnose them with prostate cancer and tell them that they are prostate cancer survivors. It's their spouses. It's their parents if mm -hmm. they're alive. It's their siblings. It's their children. It's their best friend. Every one of them deals with survivorship differently. And each of them need to be counseled through it differently. Some of them need more counseling than others. Some of them may not need any at all. Mm -hmm. But it needs to be identified. And that's why these prostate cancer survivorship series that are being held across the world have a value. And uh, the nice thing is, is that because of the COVID pandemic, many of them are being held virtually, which means that all of us now have access yeah. through the Internet 
to all of these survivorship experiences globally, and we can now pick and choose what we believe is the best one for not only for us, but for our patients Mm -hmm. and how we want to adapt them uh, to our own patients' needs. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting that you kind of bring that reality to 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 focus where it's yeah they are a survivor this is happening and not leave room for what if or what if this is different it's more of this is actually this is happening and we're going to go through this mm-hmm. and rather than saying well it could be different right no it's it's not giving any false hope i would say right i think that's like the biggest distinction the, well the worst thing to be is to to be you know indeterminate you know, with mm-hmm. the patient, you know, give them a wishy-washy response and, and not really tell them what is, you know, people really need to know the facts of right. what it is. You don't need to beat somebody over the head. I can tell you uh, that whenever somebody gets a cancer diagnosis, they remember where they were, what they were wearing and what they were thinking at that moment. They sure. never forget that moment. It yeah. is definitely life altering. Yeah. No matter it's a, if it's a small cancer diagnosis and you may brush it off is not a big deal. It's a big deal to the person who's got a cancer diagnosis. And so it's important to give it the clarity and the significance that it warrants for that individual. Uh, You know, I always say, you know, people say, oh, I have this problem, but it's not that big compared to whatever you're dealing with. Everybody has Mm -hmm. their own personal problems. They have their own personal significance Mm -hmm. and they shouldn't be minimized. You know, I'm glad you brought that up. And I'm, I don't know, Mark, if I could jump in here real quick. Go for it. So, I have this manuscript. I'm not trying to get all wonky academic. I'm trying to boil it down. So this manuscript was uh, essentially showcasing that um, if men do testicular self exam, okay, if they're at, if they were pract- like regular pr- like practicers or practicing act TSE before their diagnosis of testicular cancer, we had some correlational, not like like hard, like nothing crazy proof, but like it was something that suggests that they were diagnosed at earlier stages of testicular cancer versus if they didn't do TSE, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that, uh, anyway, we got these critique backs and one of the reviewers were saying that this is all self-reported data and was really lambasting us, saying that this is all self-report from the patient and pretty much saying that you can't trust self-report data from the patient. I responded back and I was like, I don't think you've been talking to enough survivors because I can guarantee that these survivors, the ones that I've talked to, spoken to, and Dr. Lutz just kind of validated that for me is like, and you can speak from your dad's perspective. Sure. I am, I'm almost positive that these survivors know exactly where they're, like, where they're at when they're diagnosed, like all about like what stage your diagnosis was. I mean, even if not at that moment, I know for like any survivor that I've talked to, they're like, spoken to, they're like, oh yeah, I'm like stage two or Mm -hmm. stage three C. Like, I'm like, wow, or like stage one. Like, they know what their stage was. They know like what their prognosis was. They know these things. And it's just a shame that, and I I remember thinking about this. I'm like, these people don't even give these individuals, these survivors, like the light of day, don't even like the time of day or the Mm -hmm. like this, they don't have like the, the uh, confidence in their knowledge to know about themselves. And so mm-hmm. I thought, man, that was something I didn't think that would be happening. I, anyway, I just wanted to jump in and say that, that yeah. you really well, hit something on the head right there. Well, you know, testicular cancer survivorship in my practice is very different than almost any other malignancy that we diagnose. It's in young men who believe they're invulnerable and they come in believing that they're totally healthy and perfect 
and they just think they have a swelling on their testicle and they are already presuming that it's okay, that it, there's not going to be a problem with it. They are not thinking mm -hmm. cancer. Uh, and, and also uh, equally as common are men who come in for fertility evaluations because there's an increased incidence of testicular malignancies in men with infertility. And I have at least a half a dozen men I've diagnosed with testicular malignancies who came in just with the presumption that they were coming for fertility evaluation wow. and going to leave now with a cancer diagnosis. And they're aware of a testicular cancer at the moment I examine them. And you say so young. They, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. So they're men, they're men in their 20s because the peak of testicular malignancy is in their 20s with a second peak uh, in the mid 40s. Uh, and then it's almost rare, if not unheard of, after mid-50s. Mm. And what's really kind of neat about testicular cancer, which is different than any other disease, is that, number one, active surveillance uh, actually works for a majority of them who are diagnosed with uh, pure seminomas and low-stage disease. And number two is, is after five years of no recurrence, they're considered cured. Mm. And we don't use the word cure ever in any malignancy that we treat in urology, except hmm. for testicular cancer. Hmm. So being able to use that four-letter word, cure, which is not a four-letter word a lot of people like to use, they're much more comfortable with every other four-letter word, but that's a great word that we get to use in public with all of our testicular that's cancer great. survivors. That's great. Yeah, because I usually hear cure as like almost a jinx. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like uh, you you say it's cured and it it's, uh, comes back, right? So yeah. Yeah, yeah I, um, and when you and when you have to take it back, yeah, you know, that's when you, right. When when patients ask you that question, so am I cured? You know, when they when we're talking about prostate or bladder or kidney, you say you can't use that word. You have deflated that balloon so badly mm -hmm. that no matter what you say at that point on, they don't hear a word you're saying. They just right. know that they are not cured, and the word survivor has a totally different meaning at this point. It means a survivor with chronic disease that they have to worry about. And it's really the worry that actually hangs on. We've looked at data in, in prostate cancer survivors that when men are diagnosed with prostate cancer, for the first 90 days, they have a two-fold increased risk in suicide rates mm -hmm. as to the general population, and they have a three-fold incidence of anxiety depression. And if you keep them on active surveillance, the anxiety depression rates do not diminish. So there's a big psychological overlay that is oh, yeah. uh, continuous with these disease processes and is mm -hmm. by a urologist is never addressed. I don't care who you are as a urologist. We are all doing a very, and I hate to use the word piss poor, but we do a piss poor job. It's a play in words, of course, uh, but a piss poor <laughs> job uh, when thinking about how do you manage the, the holistic diagnosis. And that's really where I think we have to go if we're going to do a better job in survivorship, we have to look at holistic health care, which means mm -hmm. the whole patient. And and I would, if I was to coin a word, it would be holistic as in W-H-O-L-E. Yeah. And, okay. and I think that that's really uh, where we need to go. And I am diligently working on that, not only in our practice at the Michigan Institute of Urology, but in other large urology groups around the country to develop a men's health clinic specifically designed initially for cancer survivors so that they get psychological evaluations and counseling right up front as mm. part of the evaluative process. Yeah, there are a few. Like, I know Nick Cost out at, uh, where is he, in Aurora, Colorado. I was out there for a little conference, and they have a social worker there for any testis cancer 
survivor, they'll have a social worker there that they take part in these like survivorship, like counseling sessions. And it's been really helpful for a lot of the guys that get treated out there. Right. Um, yeah, it was really, really cool to see that. And, I know that men are less prone to seeking counseling or therapy, right? And just to have that presented in such a forward way is really helpful. Well, and, and the thing is, like what Dr. Lutz was saying, and he's been very supportive of like a lot of my work over the years, and um, we're getting into like looking at fear of cancer recurrence and anxiety and what Dr. Lutz was saying, anxiety, depression, you know, and how that, you know, it's you survive, but then there's like the after it's like, what is, it's like a tornado came through sure. and you got to deal with the wake of it or like a big wave came through like night to deal with the wake of it all. And like, how do you survive that? And right. And knowing from at least my father's perspective, um, and like myself having a dad that got diagnosed, your dad's story is amazing though. Like when you're talking about him, like, was it nine years? Like he, lived yeah, he, he was given two to th- two to three years, um, or I think two to four. Right. But he made it nine. So, but to have that infinite timeline that you think as a male, like I'm going to live till like 90, have it cut to a very finite timeline is so traumatic. Right. And like Dr. Lutz was alluding to like, yeah, you remember where you are, what you were wearing, even like what you smelled when you got diagnosed, Mm -hmm. right? Like almost a PTSD, almost effect, right? Even like when I heard my dad got diagnosed was, I remember exactly where I was, what I was wearing, Right. It's the same thing. And like to what Dr. Lutz was alluding to, like the holistic health care is like you, if someone goes through that, it's not just a clinical, here's a pill, here's a chemo treatment. It's, yeah. it's the whole human. Yeah. And like, I want to bring something up here, Dr. Lutz, maybe you could speak to this. So here at the Male Wellness Collective, we're starting to get into whole person health, like whole person health. Um, and we're looking at different ways that it is being discussed or not. And if there are, um, places that are using this as an intervention type. And you kind of hit on that with this whole men's health clinic. And I like where you're going with it because it sounds like it's like a whole person health perspective where like you're not just treating a prostate cancer patient. You're treating like Bob the mechanic that is 59 years old that has, I don't know, stage two prostate cancer and he's married with three kids and he has diabetes and he's also a little bit depressed with anxiety and you know, and he's generally a great guy that is a big fan of the Pittsburgh Steelers or something like that. Like, it's like the whole dude, right. you know, and... Well, because, you know, well, because we get that all the time. People will come in and they're once they're diagnosed, uh, they'll say, so what can I do to improve my survivorship if I'm on active surveillance? If you're telling me I'm going to treat this as a chronic disease like hypertension, how am I going to proactively deal with this this diagnosis? And what I tell them is I quote one of our board members, Mark Moyad, who's a nutrition supplement from the University of Michigan uh, expert. And he says, if it's heart healthy, it's prostate healthy. And so I tell every guy, think about being heart healthy. You'll be prostate healthy. Think about your proper diet. Think about the fat content of your foods. Think about your sleep pattern. Think about your diet, your exercise. Stress, probably stress. If you think about all of those things, you will be doing a justice to your prostate cancer survivorship because there is data that supports every single intervention. There's data that supports sleep habits. There's data that shows exercise helps. There's data that shows that diet helps. Every one of these will help. And so that's why I think a men's health clinic where you do evaluative services to make sure that their anxiety depression is in check, that you offer diet and nutrition services, uh, that you do proper cardiac evaluation, that you offer, uh, 
you know, exercise opportunities that you develop a full service website that people can link to that have mm -hmm. fitness apps. If you if you really do this, you're actually going to improve survivorship. And, and I just want to kind of go back a little bit to one of the things that Michael was talking about that I really liked was about testicular self-examination and how these guys who do this are actually more engaged and understanding, well, I think that if you were to really look even deeper into guys that are willing to do testicular examination, they are probably healthier people, mm -hmm. that they probably have changed other behavior patterns mm -hmm. into healthier behavior patterns. They probably eat right. They probably exercise more. They probably get more sleep uh, or proper sleep patterns. And I think that that's really what you want to do is you want to engage a holistic approach to healthy behaviors Love for that. overall health and well-being. And mm -hmm. I think that testicular self-examination is just part of it, is part of the picture. Yeah. That reminds the ones me, that engage in it are going to do it. That reminds me of the, that author, Michael Pollan. He wrote that book, In Defense of Food and the Omnivore's Dilemma. Hmm. Um, I'm not saying that I prescribe to like this particular ad adage or whatever. Maybe I do, but I take supplements. But, but anyway, he's like... Don't take supplements if you don't have to. Be the type of person who takes supplements. So he's like, the person that takes supplements probably don't even need them because they're probably, I mean, a lot of these younger, because they're, they're probably exercising correctly. Oh, they're probably eating correctly. They're probably sleeping decently. They're probably a little bit low stress because they could afford to go and have the time to go to yoga and stuff like that. And But like, it, it's like you have to try to, and what he was, just to bring it back to what Dr. Lutz was saying, you got to bring it back to that whole person like what are they doing wholly again using that w-h-o-l-l -L, if that's the correct spelling of that holy what are you doing wholly to make themselves like at that level of health it's i, I thought it was interesting that to to aspire to be like this whole person mm -hmm. in all different aspects not just like looking at the silver bullet like one way like i'm just gonna eat walnuts and blueberries and my mm -hmm. selenium and my process is gonna be great it's like no bro you gotta you got to take right. a walk. You got to like ride the bike. Right. Because you know? every diagnosis is different, I would imagine. And so is every body. Every physical body is different. Everybody's going to react to treatments differently or react to stimuli differently. Right. Mm -hmm. So, like what Dr. Lutz was saying earlier, is like every case is different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Adapt to each one. Um, and thinking more on terms of community, right? I. I've been brought to awareness by Dr. Ruvido that Dr. Lutz has put on some really big community events in mm -hmm. terms of. Um, I guess what, like, not self-examination, but but being more aware of what they are protecting for themselves and their and their partners and their community as well. And if if you want to elaborate more on this, um, what, what was the, well, the HIV? Well, it, it was, uh, and I'm I'm just gonna give like my poor man's version of what, and then I'll have Doctor Lutz, you know, you know, do a few a few slam dunks with it, but. It's this men's health event, and uh, I don't know of any other person that does it like this. Like, I, I don't even know, and I'm pretty well in the field, and I can't think of anybody. Not even just, like, people do it, but at the scale that what Mike Lutz does it is, like, unfathomable. Because, uh, like, I can't even imagine what it takes to kind of pull this off. And it, this guy literally gets Ford Field rented out in the surrounding area and just gets thousands of people to come there and just, like, not just learn about men's health but celebrate it too because and it's like a place to be you know you, you can kind of 
I bring it, get a backbone and just kind of stand in line and get treated for HIV mm-hmm. or like learn about prostate cancer or go learn about heart health. And like, listen, I remember listening to Mark Moy. I talk about nutrition. I, I think he had a lion's jersey on when he was giving that public lecture. Mm-hmm. He did. Yeah, I remember that. And just sitting there and I was listening to him and it was fantastic. And, it was, and he's such a great guy too. It just, yeah. so anyway, I'll, I'll leave it to Dr. Lutz, but I mean, it's just a great event. So, you know, back in 2010, our, our foundation was purely a prostate cancer survivorship foundation. But it became really evident at that time that we had to look at men's health in general. And so I sat down with a sheet of paper to, to write down what would I want to do if I was to do a men's health screening event. And uh, then I said, well, we need a venue to do it. So I said, let's go ahead and do it at one of the hotels at their uh, at, at their at their, in their suites and take over that area there and, and see what we can do. And I constantly had people tell me, you know, why are you holding this event? Men don't care about health. No one's going to show up. Well, we had over a hundred guys waiting at the front door at 9 a.m. on the day of our first men's health event. And we screened 400 men that day and we educated them. We screened them for their vitals. We did free blood work. And then we had Chris Draper from the Red Wings talk about what he does to stay healthy and people were just engaged and we ran, we ran out of room. So I said, okay, well, we got to go somewhere else. So I said, let's get Ford field. That's a great venue. Wow. And, uh, the first year we did at Ford field, it looked like we barely filled the place, but over the years, we've been very successful, uh, in engaging the city of Detroit to be partners, to develop a trust because without the trust of the city and the trust of the people of the city, particularly an African-American population, no one's going to show up. And so we now advertise on all the buses. We now have bus routes to go directly to the Ford Field. We advertise at all of the shelters. We have buses that bring people from shelters and That's churches. Great. I didn't know that. And all of the venues that surround Ford Field. And this year, what we did is we created an area for the women who bring the men to the event so that they could get educational materials, so they could get manicures, so that they could feel <laughs> better. Cool as a result of helping to support the men in their lives. And then we added to our screening for health, we added vocational health as part of our event. And so now we have all of these local colleges uh, that offer vocational and educational opportunities to be part of our event so that men can get retrained and reeducated and get back into the workforce in case they find that they are no longer able to perform at the skills that they once were. Hmm. And so we're expanding the services that we're doing to not only get physically fit, but to get mentally fit and to get vocationally fit. Because we know that all of these parts create the whole. And so our men's health event is that. And what we do to make it feel good is we add things like haircuts and massages. Mm-hmm. And so people can walk through the event, they can get all these added benefits in addition to able to ask the healthcare provider and have like Michael was talking about having really awesome lectures or have a band playing if people want to listen to music or go down onto the football field. And yeah, kick I did that. I kicked a field goal, bro. It was awesome. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was that, really cool. Murray. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's all, it's meant to, it's meant to be tongue in cheek fun. It's meant to be non affronting. It's meant to be family friendly. And that's one of the tenets of our foundation is that all of our events have to be that they have to be educational and engaging and family friendly and a call to action. And that's part of what we do. And that's why I think our men's health event has grown. And now 10% of our attendees use it as their annual physical exam. Wow. 
we typically do detect anywhere from 50 to 100 diagnoses a year of different maladies, whether it be out of control diabetes and newly diagnosed diabetics, or whether it be somebody with uh, elevated PSA and prostate cancer, uh, or somebody with uh, acute heart disease and uh, in, in, you know, with a pending stroke or heart attack. Uh, and then we've also had people that were potentially suicidal. Uh, and wow. then we, uh, typically out of 100 people, we'll get two to four people that are newly diagnosed HIV positive. Hmm. Really? So, so yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's we get a plethora of different diagnoses that become evident at each of our events, and uh, you know, we tell their story because it's their story that might save somebody else's life. So we always say, save a life and bring a friend, hmm. and we do everything we can to get people to be engaged so that uh, we can expand what we do locally, and hopefully, uh, we'll be able to expand the model that we do in Detroit into other cities around the country with other friends and partners so that, you know, we can grow a network of people who can, you know, offer these kind of services nationally. You know, I, um, when I was there, I remember, I don't know what med school or what school it was, but they were doing like head and neck, um, uh, screenings, like seeing if you had like head and neck and, or, you know, whatever, like they're feeling. Sure. But it was really cool because they're like training, in training so they're getting mm. like actual not just like clinical training but they're actually in the community getting trained like these future health professionals sure. i think i'm not quite sure if, if you trumpet that i'm sure you do but like that's also something impactful because these individuals that are going training to be a clinician they're actually getting this this community health impact too or like under their like inner training and i thought that was really interesting because i remember talking to them i'm like what you're doing here is pretty cool because i mean how often do you get to go in the community and do this like never i'm like well this is awesome mm-hmm. for you then this is a great experience so it's also so something- so we yeah so we use every aspect of our foundation to educate the community so for instance we have a uh, a fund called the jeff murray fund in honor of uh, a former director of fox 2 news who committed suicide and so we fund this fund. We give a thousand dollars to every medical student who wants to become and commit one year of education to men's health. Wow! And uh, so if they do any research project in men's health, they get a thousand dollars, and then we promote their uh, their project. Uh, the Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine and Wayne State University the medical students are participating in our vital screening. Uh, we also have mentorships where uh, the medical students uh, do a four years of research in, in, a, in a topic related to men's health, and they're part of my Embark mentor program. And then uh, Wayne State University physician assistants come to our event, uh, yeah. nurse anesthetist volunteer. That was UD Mercy School of Dentistry and dental students and train at our event. And so we, what we do is we just encourage people to bring their students to train uh, in our event to see what it's like to work in the community and be a part of our community. I'm telling you, there's like, I, I can't think of anyone who actually does something like this. And I was in Philly doing this stuff down here in Oak, uh, down here in or- like O-Town. But like, I, and I know everyone, like a lot of people in this field, and like, I know nobody's doing it at this scale. So kudos to you, Dr. Lutz, and just keep it going. I would love to continue to help out wherever I can. And you know that. Well, you already do by yeah. just sharing the message. And, uh, you know, uh, our, our group just got purchased by private equity, so we're now part of Solaris Health, and hmm. uh, we now have uh, seven urology groups across the country that are part of our platform, and my hope is one day that we'll be able to do what we do in Detroit with all of our urology partners, and one of them is actually in Florida. Oh, yeah? So it is possible, and they may be in your neighborhood, which would be very cool. I would love, uh, we would love to help out wherever we can, but um, 
Yeah, this has been really, really cool. This has been eludicating on many, uh, many different fronts. I really appreciate your time. Mm-hmm. That's been huge. I want to thank Dr. Lutz again for coming on the show, all the way from Michigan, phoning in. It's been a been an interesting first first time phone call on the podcast. So congrats. It's coming through pretty good though. Yeah, I like it. Good. I okay. like it. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to having maybe a one stop shop expo for this kind of stuff in Orlando. Yeah, that'd be huge because it sounds like you need, that's everything you need in one stop, right? I can't think of anything like that that is like this. Yeah, like in what, like Orlando City Stadium, the soccer stadium they just built. Yeah, dude. Could you imagine? Like, no, I can't it's because huge. it would take it, it takes someone like a Mike Lutz to kind of get that stuff done. <laughs> right. You're like a mayor slash you know mayor kind of dude, and it's like you need someone like that, <laughs> like suave, you know. But it's awesome. But For um, sure. yeah, just but keep. Maybe we will, but maybe we will do it. I would love to see that happen. So something on the docket, keep in the future. All right. But uh, I think that will conclude our episode for today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on the Batbone Broadcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Batbone underscore broadcast. If you're listening on YouTube, you already know where to find us. If you can you can also find us on Spotify as well at Batbone Broadcast. Also, if you're on YouTube, hit the donate link. We love that. We are trying to get some cameras in the studio. I've been seeing that for a little while now, but it is definitely on our radar. Mm-hmm. So you can see everyone's lovely face in the studio. And Dr. Lutz, till next time, show your Batbone. Hey, thanks so much.